I am Dracula. I bid you welcome. Listen to them. Children of the night. What music they make. From the entertainment capital of the world, Las Vegas, this is Creator Talks, the interview show for comic book aficionados. I'm your host, Christopher Calloway. This Halloween special features my guest, Cary Gamble, perhaps best known for his illustration of Power Man and Iron Fist and Superman comics in the 1980s and 1990s. We discussed the comic book legend's work he admired as a youth and the conversations he later had as an adult with Jack Kirby and John Buscema. Carrie reveals why he decided it was time to move on from comics and work as a special effects concept designer and storyboard artist for television and film. Carrie is also a big fan of classic universal horror movies. Growing up in Texas in the 1950s, he would catch them on television and Saturday evenings watch his favorite local horror show, Nightmare Theater, hosted by Gorgon. Find out why Carrie thinks Gorgon was one of the best horror show hosts ever. Getting into Carrie's horror work, we discuss his book, The Famous Monster Movie Art of Basil Gogos, and why Basil told Carrie he did not want one of his illustrations included in the book. Next, Carrie talks about his own comic book series, made in the spirit of the now classic creepy and eerie black and white horror magazines titled Bell Lugosi's Tales from the Grave, which ran for four issues and is now on Comixology. This leads us to Carrie's most recent project. Bram Stoker's Dracula, starring Bell Lugosi, which Carrie served as art director, and the book is illustrated by L. Gehring. This book was years in the making, and we find out the role that Carrie played as art director and how he contributed to this special graphic novel. All this and more when I kick back with the creator to learn more about Carrie. And now, please join me and my guest for this special Halloween interview, Carrie Gamble. Here now on Creator Talks. Carrie, welcome to Creator Talks. Thank you. Your comic heroes growing up were Jack Kirby, Steve Ditko, John Buscema, Gene Colan, Jim Starenko, all favorites of mine. And I can imagine any of their comics would have turned you on. When you drew comics for Marvel and DC, did you ever have a chance to meet any of these artists? Yeah, I met most of them. I think all the ones you mentioned. Buscema was my real hero. I was very fortunate that Buscema used to come up to Marvel's office like once a year and just give a little talk to anyone who wanted to come in and just, you know, give tips and advice and things. Jim Shooter, who was editor-in-chief at the time, I happened to be on a phone call with him about something and Mentioned, you know, that, boy, I wish I could come up and meet Buscema. And he said, well, come on up. And he paid my way to come up to New York just to meet him. And that was really nice of him. So that was a big thrill. I met Kirby at a couple of conventions in the, uh, I guess, late 70s. 
early 80s. And Steranko, I've come to know a little bit. I've seen him at a lot of cons and came pretty friendly with him. Gil Kane, I used to see at conventions. And he was the first artist that actually, you know, I passed him in the hall at a convention and, and he said, oh, hi, Carrie. And he goes, I really like that cover you did on this cotton, you know, and I was like, Jill Kane, you know, sees my work, recognizes my name, knows me by sight. That was when I kind of felt like, all right, I'm, I'm one of the guys, you know. And Gene Cole and I met at a few conventions and all of them were just big heroes of mine and just really, really nice in person, especially Kirby. He was just a really sweet guy. What kind of exchange did you have when you met him at the cons? What did you talk about? I remember asking him about spider-man number one you know he did the cover for it or i guess amazing fantasy 15 and so there was kind of speculation at the time about whether kirby had actually designed the costume and things like that and whether he did or not you know he didn't say exactly he just said well no spider-man was ditko's character you know he just deserved all the credit for spider-man artwork you know and he was just really admiring of Ditko and just didn't actually say he didn't have anything to do with the costume, but but he gave all the credit to Ditko. Just thought that the character belonged to him. He's quite the gentleman, huh? Yeah. And I remember uh, at the time, the Hulk TV show was still on. He had a little cameo on that one as a police sketch artist, which I thought was a really cool little touch. I remember, you know, having seen that recently and then talking to him about that. And, you know, that's a, so many years ago, it's hard to remember, you know, the exact exchanges, but he always wanted to talk about you. One of those guys that just didn't really like to hear all that praise. You know, he just wanted to have a conversation and, and hear about you. And, you know, he was asking a lot of questions about Texas and, you know, the local uh, things around and everything. So it's kind of guy he was. So you worked in comics in the 80s and 90s and starting with Marvel Team Up. Plus, you did several issues of Power Man and Iron Fist and for DC Action Comics. Power Man and Iron Fist was my first regular assignment. The first comic I did was a Marvel team-up, but I only did one issue as a fill-in and then did a few other little odds and ends. And then I got Power Man and Iron Fist. And and then after that, I went back to the regular artist on team-up. Probably everyone has seen these covers, and I think they are some of the best covers I have ever seen. In Action Comics, Superman 662 and Lois is, from Clark's point of view, taking off the glasses and she looks surprised. And then the reveal cover 692 where Superman is revealing the big S on his shirt underneath of his civilian clothing. Just two wonderful, wonderful covers. No, thank you. I think Mike Carlin designed the one with Lois taking the glasses off. And uh, Ed Hannigan was the regular sketch artist for the covers. So the designs are basically by Hannigan for most of those action covers. My understanding is the last work you did was the Lois and Clark wedding album, which I have. And something happened that made you decide it was time to move on after 18 years in comics. So mm-hmm. what happened that made you say, I just don't feel it anymore? I guess it was kind of after I'd drawn Superman. You know, I've never been a, a really fast artist. So I've I always had a tendency to be late on things and, you know, need to like take an issue off once a year or something just to catch up. And the Superman books, you know, when I started, there were three of them and then they decided to add a fourth one. So there would be one Superman comic out every week, basically. But they had to be coordinated very closely. Once a year, they would have a Superman summit and get all the writers and artists together and kind of map out the next year. You know, each of the books had its own sort of personality and its own things that they sort of concentrated on. 
but they all had to be interconnected. So they would send out Xeroxes of the artwork as it came in from the other artists so you could, you know, reference for everything because, you know, you would have to match what was drawn in the other comics. Anyway, I was never really good at keeping up with the other guys, so they moved me off of the regular Superman books. That's when Dan Jurgens came in as the regular artist on Superman, and I went to sort of Superman, the kind of the roving Superman artist, and did various Things like the Superman for Earth graphic novel and uh, Under a Yellow Sun. It was this kind of story of Clark Kent's novel that he wrote. It kind of went back and forth between the novel and the real-life story of uh, what was going on with Clark Kent and things like that. And I did a lot of special projects, art for the licensing department, things like that. But after a while, well, where do I go from Superman? You know, it's like I had sort of done everything and drawn the most famous and first comic book superhero. So once I got off of all the Superman stuff, I went back to Marvel to do a couple of little things and just like, I just didn't recognize it anymore. There was hardly anybody there that I had worked with. It was at that time that the image stuff had become big and those artists had started running things, you know, because the sales had gotten so high based on the art and people's speculation and, you know, collecting and things that the stories didn't really seem to matter anymore. I wasn't real familiar with some of the, the work that I was drawing, and they, they just weren't really good about giving me reference and things. It's kind of like, well, just draw it however you want. It didn't really matter that it matched anything else. So I just kind of lost some of my enthusiasm for it. I'd been doing some advertising things on the side for a local promotion agency, and so I was doing more and more of that kind of work. I ended up going out to L.A., uh, to work for a special effects place and doing character designs and things like that. So that's what kind of got me completely out of comics for a while. And you were, like you said, doing some design work, uh, character design work and movie FX work. Of that work, which project was the most fulfilling to you? The place I worked for was Steve Johnson's XFX was the company. They had a regular gig doing effects for the Outer Limits series that was on Showtime at the time. And that was the most fun stuff because you know, the movie things, you know, they would take forever for anything to happen. And and a lot of those stuff that I did was never, you know, actually finished because a lot of it was for pitches for the actual assignment for different movies, you know. So any big sci-fi or, you know, monster thing that was coming along, all the effects places would try to get the job. Part of that was, was doing concept art. So a lot of the work that I did, you know, was just for presentations and didn't actually come about. But the Outer Limits was a regular thing that the uh, company had. Uh, I think them and another company, you know, kind of went back and forth doing the effects. And it was, the turnaround was pretty short, you know, so something that I would draw up for an alien design or something would get approved fairly quickly. You know, it was fun to watch the sculptors do it in clay and, you know, see it actually created and and then in a few weeks basically would be on the air so that was always the ones that i enjoyed the most so though you had tight deadlines you had a quick turnaround it wasn't as difficult for you to meet those deadlines as it was working in comics well i was actually in-house on that job like say i moved out to la i lived in texas but then my family was still here i had two kids that were in school and so i just went out there and you know kind of went back and forth every month or so I'd come back home for a few days and then I'd go back so I you know had to be there actually punch a time clock you know that kind of stuff mm, okay so it's much easier to be disciplined and 
get the work done when you have to go in and sit there certain hours every day. Being freelance, you have to have a certain amount of discipline. And I'm sort of ADD and tend to procrastinate. So a lot of why I was late was because I just didn't you know sit down at the you know at the desk certain time every day. Which reminds me, I I actually spoke to. Yosema on the phone before I met him because I had been sent something to draw. It was a page, just a one-page thing in Marvel's little in-house promotion thing, Marvel Age, I guess it was called. And it was an Avengers page, and it had Yosema's name and phone number on the top of it when they sent it to me because he was supposed to draw it because he was drawing Avengers at the time. But I guess he decided, you know, he didn't have time or didn't want to do it, so sent it to me. So I sat on that for a while and then I finally just picked the phone and I'm just going to call John Buscema. I've got his phone number here. And he was real nice to talk to me for a little while, but he was just stressing, you know, how you just had to be really, you know, self-motivated and disciplined. And, and he treated it like a real job. He got up and got to the drawing board at the same time every day. He said his wife called one time she had a flat tire and and uh, it's like, well, I'm at work, you know, call AAA or, <laughs> you know, <laughs> You know, that's the trouble. A lot of people think, well, you know, you're at home working, so you've got time to, to do this and that. But, you know, he just wouldn't allow that to distract him as if he was, you know, at a real job somewhere and couldn't just leave. So anyway, that just popped in my head when you mentioned that. But yeah, so I was there full time. Not being a business like comics where there's so many artists and you're kind of being compared and competing with all these other pros they weren't used to people that could sit and draw characters, you know, that looked real and stuff. So it's like they were all awed by how I could do that. And they didn't expect me to do it real quickly. Sometimes when I would think I was taking a long time, they go, well, how'd you do that so fast? There was a little bit of difference there because it's kind of, you know, a big fish in a small pond, I guess. Well, you're a fan of horror, moving on mm -hmm. to horror, and Halloween is approaching and it is my favorite holiday of the year. And this year is extra special because in October we have two full moons on the 1st mm. and the 31st. Is a full moon on Halloween? Yes. Two in one month. Yeah. And Halloween's on the Saturday. That's always great when it's on the weekend. Yeah. I used to love going out trick-or-treating. What did you dress up as for Halloween when you were a kid? I would usually uh, get pretty elaborate. I remember doing a Mr. Hyde makeup when I was in the fifth grade. You know, I used to buy Famous Monsters magazine and ape published a uh, makeup handbook by Dick Smith. Most of the makeup artists, special effects people that are my age grew up with that book, you know, being what got them started. And he would tell you what materials to use and where to get it. We would have to send away for liquid latex and collodion and, you know, all these things. So I was pretty big into doing makeup on myself. And I did this Mr. Hyde makeup. So I spent more time on how I looked for Halloween than I did trick-or-treating and stuff. When I was really young, we used to have spook houses in our house on Halloween. Instead of going out, my brother and I would fix up our hallway with coffins with dummies in them and skulls and spiders and bottles of junk, you know, that you had to feel of and stuff. So we were big into actually being part of it, not just going out door to door. I think this year, given the circumstances, we might be doing something like that instead of going door to door. Was your Mr. Hyde, was that the Frederick March version that you did? I actually looked a little more like the Karloff version in the Abbott and Costello Meet Jekyll and Hyde oh, yes. movie. Our school carnival every year used to rent castle films and show them in the auditorium. Mm -hmm. So they were the little cut down versions of the uh, Universal horror films. 
And that's where I first saw the creature from the Black Lagoon, you know, before it had ever come on television or anything. And they had this little 15-minute edition, you know, with sound. It was in 16 millimeter and everything. And they would show things like that. And they had Abner Costello meet Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. So that made a big impression on me, especially the ending of it, if you've ever seen the movie, where the gag at the end is all the policemen in the police station turn into Mr. Hyde and chase Abner Costello out. It really looked cool. So that's kind of what I based mine on. Was your first introduction to horror films as a kid through the TV horror host Gorgon, played by Bill Camfield of Nightmare Theater? Yeah, we had a great horror host here in Fort Worth and Dallas. Yeah, his name was Bill Camfield. He was the local star, you know, of the TV station Channel 11, which was an independent station that wasn't a network affiliate. So their whole schedule was full of old movies and TV shows and, and local shows. And Bill Camfield played a character called Icky Twerp. Uh, every morning and eventually they had him morning and afternoon and he would show the three stooges and cartoons and things like that so he was a big idol of mine he was a very funny guy but on the weekends on saturday night he hosted a show called nightmare and he was just very creepy he didn't do a lot of the humor like you know most of the other hosts that i later found out they were joking along with the movies or making fun of them he just added a lot of atmosphere the music and the opening of the show was very spooky and they had this big reverb on his voice one place upon the earth where you are surrounded surrounded by the mementos the souvenirs the things that remind you of the high points in your life such a place is dear to one is it not this room is such a place to me. For well, this is my trophy room. This is the place I like to be the most. But you have never been here before, have you? And have never completely toured my collection. How thoughtless of me. Come, my friends, and allow me to show you around. Here in this corner, is the place which is the dwelling place of the mad ghoul. I am sure you remember his hideous face and his horrible deeds. <laughs> so it really made an impression. It was the best introduction to those classic horror movies was seeing them in that setting, that kind of presentation. So I've always been grateful that that was my introduction to them. They are really creepy. I was really surprised because I see in my area now Sven Gulli on MeTV, and that's always a lot of joking and little things put in there, and it's fun. And when I was growing up in the Philadelphia area, it was Dr. Shock on Channel 17. That was our horror film host. And it was more geared towards kids, so it was a little friendlier, and there was some jokes, but it wasn't as creepy as what I saw with Gorgon. We share a fascination with classic black and white horror films made by Universal. I love those things. Still do. Your favorite, is it still The Bride of Frankenstein? And if so, why? I think that is the one that kind of grabbed me the most as a kid emotionally. You know, the monster is very sympathetic. You know, the blind man teaches him to speak. And then he cries while the blind man is thanking God for sending this friend. And the music is incredible in that one. My brother and I had a reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder and we used to connect it to the tv and record the sound of these movies you know way before home video just to capture them you know as much as we could so listening 
to them. We listen to them all the time. And you hear a lot more that you kind of miss. You know, you don't have the picture. It's like listening to radio. And so your imagination kind of takes over. So you pay much more attention to the dialogue and just the delivery of everything. And then the music just jumps out so much more when you don't have the picture. Franz Waxman did the score for Bride of Frankenstein, and it's just brilliant. They reused it for a lot of stuff. If you see the Flash Gordon serials, it's full of music from the Bride of Frankenstein. You make man like me? No. Woman. Friend for you. Woman. Friend. Yes. I want friend. Like me. I think you can be very useful. And you will add a little force to the argument if necessary. Do you know who Henry Frankenstein is? And who you are? Yes, I know. Made me from dead. I love dead, hate living. You're wise in your generation. We must have a long talk, and then I have an important call to make. Woman, friend. And, you know, this is all before the streaming we have today, before the DVDs, before the VHS. I bought a lot of those when they came out on VHS. Because before that, like you, what I had to do was check the local TV guide for movies like that. Because I didn't know when they would be on. And I would hope to catch the ones that I hadn't seen yet. Me too. You know, anything that I had heard about, famous monsters or or something. Uh, and back then, you didn't know what the limits were to this stuff, you know. It's like, well, how many Frankenstein movies are there, you know? I've never seen this one. I've never seen that one. And back then, they just showed them pretty randomly. And so it took a while to realize, oh, this one is the one that came before this one. You saw him get chipped out of the ice in this movie, you know, and then see the movie before it go, oh, they were in the flood at the end. And this is the one where the next movie, they were frozen, you know, in the ruins of the castle. So it took a while to kind of put them in order and realize which one led to the other. Because they had a pretty good continuity to them. Of course, they didn't stick to it. They treated each one as an individual movie. So you could do something in one movie, completely change it in the next one. But they still had a direct sequel kind of thing. One that did not was the Abbott and Costello. Their movies, I thought, were wonderful, especially uh, Meet Frankenstein is my all-time favorite. Count Dracula sleeps in this coffin, but rises every night at sunset. Chick is right. This is awful silly stuff. Dracula. Chick! What's the matter now? You know that person you said that there's no such person? Yes. I think he's in there, in person. I was reading a sign over here, this one down here. Yeah. Dracula's legend. All of a sudden I heard... That's the wind. It should get oiled. Listen, stop reading this thing. That's a lot of phony baloney to fool McDougal's customers. Now fold up that canvas and get busy. Come on. Dracula can change himself at will into a vampire bat flying about the countryside. Flying. Listen, you're making enough noise to wake up the dead. I don't have to wake him up. He's up. 
I saw a hand. You saw a hand? Uh-huh. Where? Right over there. Let me see it. Right over there. Where is it? I saw a hand there. You don't know what you're talking about. You're all excited reading this legend. Now, listen. Listen, Wilbur. I know there's no such a person as Dracula. You know there's no such a person as Dracula. But does Dracula know it? I've seen a lot of those movies now that were on my list. Have you seen everything you want to see in terms of the old classics? Are there any still left on your list? I mean, besides, of course, London After Midnight, which doesn't exist, as far as we know. <laughs> yeah, once in a while something comes up that I hadn't seen before. But these days, when you can find things on YouTube or on the Internet or some of these sites, it's not exactly legal, but you can find it if you know how. The quest is kind of winding down for things that I that I haven't seen. But now being older... I can watch movies that I have seen and go, oh, I don't remember this at all. So, uh, so as you get more forgetful, you can watch these old things again, and they're just like they're brand new. Yeah, I think I've seen just about everything I want to see, but I still find discover things here and there. And I hope someday, and maybe they never will, but I hope they do discover a London After Midnight at some point. Because I understand that the last copy was in a fire and was destroyed, and that one, we only see stills of that. And I've seen a reconstruction of it that was done. That's the closest we have. And mentioning that, by the way, uh, you published an art book a while back uh, with J. David Spurlock, who I met, famous monster movie art of Basil Gogos. I think on that cover was the London After Midnight Vampire. Right, yeah, the softback was London After Midnight. And they, it was a hardback edition. They had the Phantom of the Opera on the cover. But yeah, that would be great if that ever turned up. Apparently, you know, there were clips of it shown on some show back in the 50s, you know, so it existed back then. But I think it was probably a fire or something, you know, that has destroyed some of those original negatives and or materials from MGM, some of the others. Speaking of this, there was something that popped up just a couple of weeks ago. Somebody sent me a link to a clip from, I guess it was a Steve Allen show, late 50s or early 60s or something. And they were doing a comedy bit and talking about Frankenstein. And they showed this little clip of Cheney Jr. from Ghost of Frankenstein, where he was all burned and smoking, which I've seen a still of that. But I thought it was just a publicity thing. But there was actually footage of him walking around with the castle burning in the background. And I thought, well, was this from a trailer? Is this a cutting room floor thing? A lot of the original trailers were scenes that weren't actually in the movie. I guess it was not as easy to take the negative and recut it for the trailer. They would take snippets. If you ever see the original trailer for Frankenstein, you know, not the one that you see most of the time, which is a re-release, almost all the scenes are not in the movie. They're little snippets from just before or just after the way it's cut in the film. So maybe that's where this thing came from, but it's one of these mysteries that you never think is going to happen. And then it popped up. Where did this footage from Ghost of Frankenstein come from that's never been seen? And how did they get hold of it for the Steve Allen show? I saw recently on the news a few weeks ago that they had discovered some black and white silent movies that they thought were lost but they were just misfiled and someone was going through an archive and found them and they thought these were lost forever. Unfortunately, not a horror film. You know, mm. it wasn't London After Midnight. And I'm like, where's that one? I keep, I keep hoping somebody finds a copy. Yeah, it could happen. Going back to the famous monsters of movie art, as a Gogos, what did you learn about the artist as you put that together? Basil was just a very sweet guy, very humble and unassuming, very sensitive person. Some of the things we wanted to use in the book he uh, wouldn't let us because there's a cover of Famous Monsters that has this very bizarre-looking Frankenstein on it. I think it's issue 13. It's based on a picture that was in the back 
of an issue of Famous Monsters, like a fan club ad or something. And it looks like some kid wearing this bizarre homemade Frankenstein thing. So Basil had just done a painted sketch of it, you know, very loose, and showed it to Jim Warren and saying, you know, you want me to finish this up for a cover? And he liked it the way it was. And so they actually ran that. But at the time, they hadn't actually put a picture of Frankenstein on the cover yet. Forrest Ackerman, the editor, was upset that Warren put this Frankenstein on the cover because it wasn't Boris Karloff or Glenn Strange or anyone. It was still this weird, strange, quashed face-looking Frankenstein thing. And so Basil knew that Ackerman didn't like that cover, and so he wouldn't let us put it in the book because he had this bad feeling about it because he knew that Foy didn't like it. And we had this full-size transparency of it with colors that did not come out in the printed version. Some of the early Famous Monsters covers were in a, a different printing method. They came out kind of coarse and contrasty compared to uh, some of the later issues. So it would have been, you know, appeared the way it really looked and much different than it was printed. And we had this great original photographic source for it. It just broke mine and David's hearts that he wouldn't let us use that because it was like a real coup, you know. But he's, no, I don't, I don't like this one because Ford didn't like it. And little things like that would kind of affect his feelings for some of the, the artwork, no matter how good it was or how much praise he got from some people. And he was kind of sensitive about some of the men's magazine artwork in the 50s, I guess, in, in early 60s. And, you know, the men's magazine, men's adventure magazines, those ones that were popular back then that were kind of... A, as I think of it, a cross between Boy's Life and Playboy or something, you know, where it's just kind of <laughs> adventure stories for men, you know, the kind of fantasies and a lot of skimply clad women, you know, and military stuff, army things. And so he was uncomfortable about some of that now, and especially some of the war stuff that had Japanese people or Vietnamese, things like that. He just thought these might be offensive now. But he was a very sweet, lovely guy and just a joy to get to know him personally. Some folks like to collect horror memorabilia. And one person I found out that's a big fan of Basil's art, Kirk Hammett of Metallica. Apparently he owns some of the original art. He's actually bought it and he collects a bunch of stuff, including costumes from Bela Lugosi's White Zombie. I have my little collectible here. It's just a little uh, Lewis Marks mummy plastic figurine I keep here on my desk. Do you have any cherished horror collectibles? I have an original one sheet still from the uh, man-made monster with Lon Chaney Jr. Yes. Uh, I used to have a fairly good collection. I was focused on Lon Chaney Jr. because you could get his stuff a little more reasonably priced than if you were after Karloff and Lugosi. And I always thought Chaney was great anyway, you know, growing up to all those Universal films. You know, he was the biggest star to me as Karloff and Lugosi. So I had quite a good collection for a while of posters and things, but I ended up selling them over the years. They were just hard to display them and find the a way to put them all up and things. And they had become more valuable than when I had bought them. So I uh, ended up cashing in on some of them and getting the money. But I always hung on to that poster. It's not in real good condition, so it's not worth a whole lot. So I thought, well, I'm just going to keep this one. And I have a of Mice and Men re-release poster, too. I still have some of my Aurora model kits. They were big when I was a kid. And some of them are actual ones from the 60s. You know, I've rebought them over the years in different forms and repainted them better than I did as a kid. Still have some of the ones that I had as a kid. And I still have all my Famous Monsters issues. I've got replicas of those Marks figures. 
which are really great. You know, the Aurora ones, they were really cool to have as a kid, but they weren't really that on point with the way the monsters look. You know, the Wolfman looks cool, but he doesn't look like Chaney's Wolfman. You know, the box art is really neat of all those because, you know, James Bama did those paintings. The same guy that did all the old Doc Savage covers. So those were really iconic to us. We always kept the boxes. And I, my first drawings, things like the Wolfman and Dracula, were just drawing those Aurora model boxes. The only thing that's bad about the Wolfman box is that <laughs> Bob like mixed up the references from different movies. So he's got a Lon Chaney Jr. face on a uh, Curse of the Werewolf, Oliver Reed. Oh, okay. <laughs> and actually put ears on the top of his head like Oliver Reed had. Ah, <laughs> so okay. it's a very weird mashup. It's weird how those things that get started back then and then you see that done and everything else, you know, that kind of followed. Like the Soki bottles had those kind of wolfman ears. He had regular ears on the side, then he had those dog ears at the top. Mm-hmm. Back then, you know, the licensing stuff, they probably just give you a few photographs and It wasn't like the day where you had to pass all these approvals and things. There was a lot of different versions of the monsters would be on products and stuff back then. But those Marx figures were very close to the the movie versions. And they're great little sculpts, especially the mummy, I think, really captures cars. And the creature is much better than Aurora's creature. They're really cool. Right. Now, you're a big fan of Bela Lugosi and took a stab at horror in the spirit of EC Comics as EIC of Monsterverse. And I hadn't read these. And I have to dig into them because you wrote Bella Lugosi's Tales from the Grave, which people can now find on Comixology, by the way. And you wrote and drew the stories. I was the publisher and I was the editor. Mm-hmm. And I wrote a few and drew a few. But, you know, we treated a lot like EC or like the early issues of Creepy and Eerie. So there were there were different artists on each story. So I didn't do all those things and I ended, but I tried to really capture that spirit of the Warren and EC horror comics. And I just thought it was fascinating that I had come to know Bela Lugosi Jr. a little bit. I'd see him at these conventions and Sarah Karloff, Boris's daughter, and I know Ron Chaney fairly well, Lon Jr.'s grandson. I thought, wouldn't it have been cool if Lugosi had been able to have something like Karloff had in Thriller on TV, where you have Lugosi and his creepy persona introducing horror stories, hosting a horror thing like that. So I ended up making a deal with the Lugosi estate to be able to use Bela as the host of the book. And we put out like four issues of that before it finally, you know, struggled too much and had to, had to end it. But it was so much fun, you know, just a, a dream project that I wanted to do on my own, you know, even though we lost a lot of money because I didn't realize how hard it would be to compete with the companies when the Diamond Catalog is huge and most people don't get past the first half of it you know they don't even right. look at the back part and everything's alphabetical you know and, and unless you put a lot of money into advertisement and promotions it's really hard to get people to take a chance on it because you know they got so much in their budget to order comics and they know they can sell all these marvel and dc and image and whatever but taking a chance on an independent thing and then you know horror might not be that big a seller in most comic shops compared to the superheroes and stuff so it was hard to get above a certain level of sales but it was mainly just something i did for the love of it well let's help you recoup some of that cost friends if you're listening (laughs) you're through the sound of my voice we're nearing halloween now is an excellent time to download these on demand through Comixology. I think that you should also consider doing some work for the Creeps because some of the artists that are in the book do work for the Creeps. You're familiar with the Black and White magazine, which is like Creepy mm-hmm. Eerie. Yeah, I think you'd be a good fit there. 
I've thought about approaching them. At first, I had a little negative feeling for them. Partly they were competition at the time, Mm -hmm. but they are so much into duplicating the war and stuff. And I didn't think they'd last very long because I thought that Dark Horse would probably shut it down because Dark Horse owned Creepy and Uncle Creepy. And these guys were being closer to the original Creepy than the new Creepy was. And they were using pretty much Uncle Creepy. You know, they put a robe on him with a hood, but they were actually using direct copies of artwork of Uncle Creepy, just changing it a little bit. So that kind of rubs me the wrong way as an artist. I hate to see another artist, you know, lifted like that without credit. So early on, you know, I thought, I don't know about these guys, but I have several issues and they're a lot of fun. And a lot of people I respect have been doing work for them. So I thought, well, maybe I'll, I get the itch to draw another one. I'll give them a call. But what you've done now, which I think is amazing, I love this, Bram Stoker's Dracula starring Bella Lugosi. Bella is back in the moonlight as Dracula in a graphic novel adaptation of Bram Stoker's 1897 Dracula. In fact, before taking to the silver screen as the Count in 1931, he would be playing Dracula on stage between 1927 and 1929. So to see him, his likeness, in the original story by Bram Stoker is incredible. And as you mentioned, you know Bella Lugosi Jr. and you have the approval of Bella's son to do this. Yes, this was a project that started at MonsterVerse as sort of a back burner project, you know, that we wanted to do eventually. But we were kind of trying to build up the company a little bit first. But then when I ceased publication, I had to shelve that. They, I don't really know how it came about, but they got together with Legendary Comics and got it, the project going there with the same idea. As you said, Lugosi played Dracula in the 1931 movie, and he played him on the stage before that. But the stage adaptation was very loose adaptation, and the movie version was based on the stage version. So there wasn't much faithfulness to the Bram Stoker book in those. So we thought, well, you've never seen Lugosi play Dracula the way it was originally written in the Bram Stoker version. So Lugosi's Dracula is the only universal monster that is actually just a person's real face. Mm -hmm. And the fact that he had played Dracula before he played in the movie, the Lugosi family has a lot of leeway in licensing Lugosi's likeness to different things. We didn't have to go through Universal or anything. This is completely different from the movie version. We just thought it would be a unique thing to have him play the way the, the book told the story. Legendary had begun this project. The main artist on it is uh, an artist named L. Gehring. He was very good, but he's pretty young. And he didn't grow up during that time, you know, mm-hmm. like some of us did, where we just were so just soaking up this atmosphere from those universal movies and from all the old movies and, and, you know, all the different versions of Dracula, you know, there's been so many, you know, I'm sure I've seen most of them. And so he wasn't really picking up on a lot of the kind of traditional, the spookiness of it and all everything. So the likenesses weren't exactly what the Lugosi family likes. And I had been working with legendary at this time, too, because I had made a deal with them to be a consultant for them and there's some other business with them. And so they just said, well, let's get Carrie to come in on this and be the art director. I sort of guided it to put more of the traditional horror look to it that I wasn't quite getting and then supervising all the Lugosi likenesses. So, you know, 95% of the work is El Gehring with me sort of working with him on layouts and then doing 
pretty much most of the Lugosi faces and some of the figures and things. So it's kind of a weird hybrid of the two of us. But I love doing it because I didn't have to draw all of that complicated <laughs> stuff. Just kind of go back and touch it up and then handle the fun stuff for me, which was doing Bela Lugosi's likeness. And that book comes out on October 6th, which would have already come out by now. Well, they've just had a delay at the printer. Okay. So it apparently now may not be out until the first week in November. Okay. So I know that's a, a real heartbreak to us. So we're trying to get it out in early October for Halloween, but then there was a, a few problems putting the files together in, in the formatting. Some things had to be redone and changed. So it delayed it a little bit and then the printer couldn't fit it into their schedule until a little later. So maybe it'll be out by Halloween, I'm hoping, but it looks like it'll probably be first week in November. Well, then folks are going to hear about this before the book comes out then, which is even better. So you can go vote and then you can go to the comic store and get this book or the bookstore. <laughs> Because it's, it's November 3rd, so actually going to be available, I think. Is it broken down in chapters like the book, or have you combined some of them for the flow of the book? It's fairly close to the book. There are chapters. I don't know if they coincide with the chapters in the book, or if we just sort of broke it down into different sections where there's obviously all the stuff at the castle at the beginning, Transylvania, and then it goes to London for a while, and it does have chapters in it. And I think Robert Napton, who's senior editor at Legendary, he did the adaptation from the novel, and it was very well done. I thought uh, most of the dialogue is right out of Stoker. But, of course, it's a very kind of difficult book to adapt because it's not done in a narrative style, if anyone's ever read it or that familiar with it. It's kind of like found footage, you know, in these modern movies where all of the book consists of writings done by people either in journals or you know, newspaper reports. Most of it's either Jonathan Harker's journal or Lucy transcribing Dr. Seward's notes or things written by Van Helsing. So it's an odd kind of format. So we didn't try to get it down to that. I mean, we show people writing the journals, but it's done at, in more of a narrative style. But it really feels like the novel to me, you know, once it was all done and I read through it completely with the lettering and everything. It's a, wow, this really does capture it. But the, the book has a lot of places where it lags, and we sort of tried to truncate that a little bit and focus as much as we could on the character of Dracula, which are parts of the book that you don't really see him a lot or you hear about things he did, but we show them in the book. And this is all in black and white? Yes. The, originally, we thought about doing black and white and red, mm -hmm. and so just certain things would be in red. I guess kind of like Schindler's List almost. But thought, well, it, it would just cost more. To, we'd have to print it in full color just to add the red. The one color, yeah. Right. And it just kind of an idea that sort of seemed less important as we went along. So it is all in black and white, including the cover, which, uh, you know, we just wanted to, to kind of keep it in that kind of classic look of both the old foreign horror comics and the, the old movies and things. What I find interesting is Bella's Dracula actually has fangs on the cover, which in the movie, you know, you never saw fangs. Right. Of course, in the book, Dracula doesn't look anything like Bela Lugosi. So we had to decide, well, how are we going to portray him? We didn't want to hide Lugosi's actual looks. And in the book, he's got sort of long white hair and a big mustache. So we thought, well, we wanted to look as much like the classic Bela Lugosi look as possible. But there's a lot of talk about the fangs, you know, in the book. We thought, well, if they were doing the movie now with Bela Lugosi, he would definitely have fangs. 
of course, Christopher Lee, you know, that look is so famous. So we thought, well, let's see if we can do the fangs without making him look too much different. But we thought that's just something you never have seen either, you know, besides, uh, you know, Lugosi and the Stoker version is by Lugosi's Dracula with fangs. That was the decision we made to go ahead and add those. Another interesting thing about the way he looks is he does start out older at the beginning and then get younger as he's able to drink more blood from people and when he you know, goes to London and stuff. So we thought, well, that's actually most of the portraits of him in the book are based on photographs of Lugosi. So, you know, it was finding photographs to match the scenes, you know, which would be the best reference to use. So for the early scenes where he's older, we used all references of Lugosi when he was older. So he, you know, really looks like Lugosi in his 70s in the beginning of the book and then when his younger days later on in the book. I can't wait to see this. It sounds great. Yeah, it was a real dream project for me. It's been in the works for a long time, so I'm glad it's finally coming out. Well, I hope it does well. And uh, if you have some time, I'm going to just ask you some of the fun questions I ask all my guests. I call it Kicking Back with the Creator to learn more about you as a person. Uh oh. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're easy questions. Whatever you want to share for recreation. What do you like to do for recreation? Well, I still watch a lot of movies, you know, uh, and old TV shows, stuff like Me TV. My wife and I love watching the old Perry Mason episodes. And I, I'm sort of a closet karaoke singer. I used to go to this karaoke bar for a little while that has closed down now. This is like about five years ago, you know, I started going there and getting to know some people and, and just started hanging out there. And and after a long time, I finally, you know, when there were like three people in the bar late one night, I got up and sang on the stage. And so I really got to enjoy that. But there's a an app now you can get called Smool. They have several music apps. This one's called Smool Sing. It's really a lot of fun because people all over the world will do a song on there and they can do duet versions. And so you can go on and do the other part of the duet with them. I spend a lot of time just doing, I just sing a lot of old Beatles songs and, you know, just things like that. And I only do it when nobody else is around because I'm not that great a singer, but I enjoy singing those old songs a lot because I was a huge Beatles fan. Don't tell anyone, but that's my secret uh, okay. pastime. <laughs> Thinking back, what was a favorite or memorable birthday of yours? Gee, like I say, when you get older, it's like everything <laughs> it runs together. Starts to blur, you know. So yeah, my family they would always get me monster things or superhero things. Just a few years ago, uh, I spent my birthday at a theater in Dallas watching The Creature from the Black Lagoon with Julie Adams was there as a guest she was selling a new book and so that was just fun to go and meet her get some pictures taken with her and then watch the creature from the black lagoon on on a big movie screen that wasn't something that was that as a kid that was probably six or seven years ago but that's one birthday memory that i actually could latch on to and remember that's one i would cherish yeah what sir is your beverage of choice when you're relaxing cherry dr pepper ah very good i like that too Thinking back, when you were younger, what posters or pictures did you have on your bedroom wall? Hmm. I had a King Kong poster, that photograph of him sort of towering over New York with the girl in his hand. I don't know if it was really Faye Ray or not, but it was a very popular poster back then in the 60s. Posters were big. People had like this Bogart poster. You'd see a lot of stuff. I had a Laurel and Hardy poster because I love Laurel and Hardy. The first movie poster I ever bought was... The uh, Indestructible Man with Lon Chaney Jr. I got it for $5, <laughs> one sheet in good condition, 
But this was in the 60s, so the movie was only like 10 years old or something, or maybe a little older than that. But that was the first movie poster that I had on my wall. I had a few, Marvel put out these black light posters, and I had the Silver Surfer and Doctor Strange. Those were a few I remember. If you were stuck on a deserted island, what would be the one book you'd want to have with you for pleasure to read? I love all the movie history books, and there's uh, some recently that I've gotten and haven't even managed to read yet. Uh, there's a big book that I did the cover design for about the Creature from the Black Lagoon series, and I haven't been able to, to read that yet, so I'd probably take something that I've been meaning to read for a long time and hadn't gotten around to like that. Yeah, those become my list of movies I want to see. When I was a kid, I had a uh, horror film paperback, and it was from that, my list, to pick off as I saw those movies. My final question has to do with horror movies. One time I went to a convention, and I saw a piece of artwork by Bud Root, and he often does busty ladies and everything, but what struck me about this was a picture of the Three Stooges and all the horror monster classics... The Wolfman, Frankenstein, Belagosi's Dracula. And it was called, this mock movie poster, In the Tomb of Wolfman. And I was like, wow, can you imagine if the Three Stooges made a horror movie kind of like Abbott and Costello did? That's funny. I started to even mention this uh, when I talked about watching the Epic Still Movies. And I mentioned that back then as a kid, you didn't know how deep this well was, you know? Mm -hmm. And so having some Frankenstein was one of the first ones I'd seen. And I remember thinking, I wonder if they'll ever have the three stooges meet Frankenstein. Maybe that'll come up. (laughs) uh, I didn't understand about the studios and Universal had Abby Costello and the monsters and Columbia had three stooges. Mm -hmm. Yeah. My favorite three stooges short is one with a werewolf in it called idle rumors. And it's got this guy who looks basically like, the werewolf in the Columbia movies like The Return of the Vampire and The Werewolf. Is that the one where a woman in the short is yelling at Curly, wolf, wolf, and he's behind yeah. him? <laughs> yeah. And he goes, well, I never thought I was handsome. But, you know. <laughs> and he goes over to the mirror and the glass has been broken out and the werewolf is standing on the other side. Curly's looking in the mirror thinking, you know, it's him. He goes, ah, I think maybe you got something there, lady. <laughs> All those are just ingrained in me from seeing them so many times as a kid. I always said you face gas, people. Why don't you throw it away? And you do a good curly. (laughs) Thank you. And my question is, what would be your dream classic horror film that was never made that you wish was? Like you mentioned, The Three Stooges and Frankenstein Monster. Is there some movie, oh, I wish this actor had played this part? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of that kind of stuff, I'm sure. I can think of, I did a fantasy poster once for a, an article on a, on a website uh, of Abbott and Costello meet the creature, mm. which the article was about. There's an old Colgate Comedy Hour live TV show with Abbott and Costello that had the creature in the Black Lagoon pop up at the very end of this little spooky sketch they did. And it was, you know, to promote the movie. But I made a little mock-up one sheet for the article of Abbott and Costello meet the creature. And I thought, well, that would have been a cool you know, movie to see. They did The Mummy and Jekyll and Hyde and Frankenstein and The Wolfman and Dracula but, and The Invisible Man, too, which was pretty good. So it would have been cool if they'd have put them with the creature. I guess that's, that's the first one that comes to mind. I'm sure there are lots more. And coming soon, everyone, Bram Stoker's Dracula starring Bella Lugosi. 
with art by L. Gehring with the assist of Carrie Gamble. Carrie, thank you so much for being on Creator Talks. Thank you. Been a pleasure. I just want to take a few moments to share with you an experience I had with the family a few weeks ago. We traveled to Boulder City, Nevada, which is not too far from Las Vegas. It's about 45 minutes from the house. And we went there specifically to see a horror museum, Tom Devlin's Monster Museum. It's a museum. It's not a haunted house. So it wasn't spooky, at least not intentionally, because it did scare the four-year-old. But it is a display of monster movie creatures and actors and famous movies ranging from the very beginning of the silent era all the way through to the 2000s. And Tom actually worked on making monsters and special effects for horror movies in the 2000s, which is part of the museum. There are some actual props used in horror films in this museum, including a mega piranha and a gingerbread man. You may recognize those names from those horror movies. Also, they had statues of the Toxic Avenger, Killer Clowns, the They Live Aliens, that I thought was really cool. And also they had a display of The Exorcist, which creeped me out when I was a kid. I couldn't sleep for nights after that, and I did not take pictures of that. Other displays were Fan of the Opera, Dracula, Mummy, Frankenstein, Wolfman, and they also had life masks of Boris Karloff, Alfred Hitchcock, Vincent Price, and Bela Lugosi. And in the lobby, in the gift shop, related to comic books, was a full-size figure of Captain America, the zombie version from Marvel Zombies. I'll be posting those on my social media accounts. Yes, you can follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Creator Talks Pod. That's at Creator Talks Pod, where I will post those pictures during Halloween week, as well as some of my favorite comics from the Silver Age and Bronze Age on Saturdays and Sundays. These are selected from my personal collection. If you wish to correspond with me directly, the best way is through good old email. My email address is creatortalks at gmail.com that's creatortalks at gmail.com this show is available every other thursday except for special episodes like this one thank you for joining me for this halloween episode i look forward to you joining me in two weeks for my next interview for creator talks i have been your host christopher calloway until next time